our featured BBBgive.org accredited charity seal holders for this episode are International Justice Mission, Locks of Love, Mona Foundation. To find out more about these and other BBB Wise Giving Alliance accredited charity seal holders, go to give.org. You're listening to the Heart of Giving podcast with Art Taylor, powered by BBBgive.org. Here we explore the motivations that form the basis of giving and service. We inspire generosity and celebrate the transformative effects that giving and service have on the human spirit and on community. The conversations featured on the podcast also uncover giving strategies that educate and provide tools to help listeners make impactful gifts of both their time and money. We hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome to the Heart of Giving podcast, powered by BBBgive.org. Give.org is the nation's standards-based charity evaluator, and it's your one-stop source for information on giving and reports on the most asked about charities. I'm Art Taylor. Today on the show, I'm going to take a deep dive into charity finances. And I'm going to do this because so often when people find out about the organization that I lead, the BBB Wise Giving Alliance, they want to know if we are indeed the organization that will tell people how much money a charity spends on overhead. And in many cases, they don't really care about anything else we do. They just want to know how much money is a charity spending on overhead. And, you know, while that's somewhat important, it's not, and you'll find out why through this conversation, I hope, It's certainly not the most important thing to focus on when you're considering making a donation to charity. And I hope through this talk today, through this show, I can help you appreciate why you may be missing out on a lot if you're only focusing on what a charity spends on overhead. Now, the first thing I want to do is help everyone appreciate how the nonprofit sector, and more specifically, how the charitable sector is laid out from a revenue standpoint. And I'll start by saying that no one really knows the actual number of charitable organizations in the country. And that is because if an organization brings in less than $5,000 in revenue, then they don't even have to register as a charity with the Internal Revenue Service. So you have that. But let's talk about the ones who actually do register with the Internal Revenue Service. There are about a million 501c3 organizations in a country. And these are known as public charities or private foundations, but we're not going to focus on them right now. Public charities are ones that if you make a gift to, 
your donation can be tax deductible. That is depending on your personal tax situation. And the organization does not have to pay any federal income tax or any net revenues that it generates. So these are what are known as tax-exempt organizations, but these are also organizations that individuals can get a tax deduction when they make a donation. There are other types of nonprofits too, other types of tax-exempt organizations as well that won't have to pay taxes on any net revenues, but individuals who donate or give them money are not going to be eligible for any tax deductions at all. We're not talking about them today. I'm only talking about those organizations from which your donation may be eligible for a tax deduction. So focusing on them alone, there are about a million or so of those organizations. Of those one million organizations, about 35% are large enough to file what is known as an Internal Revenue Service 990 annual report. And you might ask, well, how large is that? Well, you have to be at least $50,000 in revenue to file a short form and over $200,000 in revenue to file the long form 990 annual report. And in the 990, there's a whole variety of information that a charity has to disclose to the Internal Revenue Service, and that information should be on display and available to anyone who wants to know. And in that form, you'll also see how much money a charity spends on programs, administration, and fundraising. You can go right to their 990s and find that out. Now, this is only, as I said, about 35% of the organization's that are registered as charitable organizations with the Internal Revenue Service. It does not even take into account the untold number of organizations that are too small to even have to worry about filing as a tax-exempt or nonprofit or charitable organization with the Internal Revenue Service. and We don't even know how many there are. So what's the takeaway from this? Well, first of all, it means that there are really two classes of organization. One class is made up of primarily volunteers who are providing mostly local services through this nonprofit organization. Whatever money they get is generally passed through directly to the program or individuals that this organization is attempting to serve. The second class is made up of organizations with substantially more sophisticated operations such that they have paid staff generally and programs that are either supporting people directly or supporting a cause that the organization is set up to serve. It may also, by the way, have other types of costs, not only salaries for program people, but 
administrative costs and indeed even fundraising costs. So we have two different classes of organizations. And depending on which type of organization you're more accustomed to, you could have a very different understanding or appreciation for a charity's finances. And I want to get into that a little bit now. Many people, they're dealing with organizations that are primarily volunteer-led. These are really small organizations that are doing services. They're, they may be donating uh, a little bit of cash to people in need. They may be a local softball team that helps kids. They may be little youth service programs. Very valuable to local communities. Very valuable. And these are organizations that bring people together to solve primarily local problems. Great that they're around. But there's a whole nother category of organizations. These are organizations that have substantial revenues, organizations that are complex in how they execute their programs and how they design their programs. They have boards of directors. They have paid staff. They have infrastructure. They have technology. They have large groups of volunteers and sophisticated systems to deliver programs, sometimes locally, but also nationally. These organizations are ones that do the vast majority of public soliciting. When you get letters in the mail, chances are you're going to get letters from these organizations. When you get calls on your phone asking you to solicit, chances are they're going to come from these organizations. They're not going to come from these really small organizations. So what we're going to do today is focus on these really large organizations, these larger organizations. Some of them actually have revenues into the billions of dollars. Others have revenues into tens of thousands of dollars. Some have revenues slightly over a million, but you can see that they're not these really small $5,000 organizations. This is important because if you are a person who tends to see charities as these really small operations under $5,000 in revenue, it's going to be really hard for you to accept that there are these other organizations where people have to get paid. There may be consultants, there are vendors, there are all types of activities going on in these organizations involving money, some of which may be administration, some of which may be fundraising costs, some of which may require people to get paid substantial salaries consistent with how they are able to contribute to that organization. It's going to be really hard maybe for you to accept that these organizations need overhead in order to function. And so in our nonprofit sector and in the charitable sector in particular, we have a conundrum. We have lots of people who see charity as these really small organizations with little to no overhead primarily served through volunteers doing work on a local basis that everyone can see and touch. They don't do a whole lot of fundraising because 
the people who support them know the organization very well, and they take a few dollars out of their pockets when needed to support what's going on in that organization. That's one orientation. If you're that person, it may be more difficult for you to accept that larger organizations cannot operate that way. They are operating at a much different scale. They don't touch every person who gives them money. They have to go out and find people to donate money to them. They need people to account for what goes on inside of the organization. They need people to administer a staff. They need technology to help the organization operate effectively. They have far more sophisticated operations that need to be managed by very skilled people who need to be paid a living because they're doing this on a full-time basis. And so if you're the person who only sees charity as this smaller organization, you may have a challenge accepting because you don't necessarily understand what goes on inside of these larger organizations. You may be under the impression that any money spent on salaries or benefits for people represent overhead because in your world, charity is simply a way to pass money from those who have it to those who need it. But there are many organizations, as I keep saying, who actually operate programs in order to do this. And I just want to make that distinction because now as I get to talk about charity overhead, hopefully this distinction will help you better understand why these organizations need overhead. And then we can talk about what is reasonable from the standpoint of them actually having overhead. Okay. So let's talk about this whole question of overhead. What is it? What is overhead? Because here again, I think people have very differing ideas about how to define overhead. So, overhead represents expenses incurred by a nonprofit or charitable organization that have no direct connection to a charity's programs. Let me try to give you an example. Let's assume we have this program that operates after school to help young people from disadvantaged communities do their homework. They pick the kids up from school. They take them to a facility. They have qualified people there to assist them with their homework. They give them a snack. And when it's time, either a parent will come pick them up or they'll bust the kids to their homes after the program's over. That's the service. It's been proven over time that kids who get these services, let's say, tend to do better in school. 
all of the people who are working with those kids on a daily basis would be considered program expenses. Also, if those kids are getting a snack while they're getting their services, that would also be considered program expenses. In addition to that, the vehicles that are used to pick these children up and take them home if they're using them, that would be considered program services. The building that the kids go to to get these services would be considered program services. The salaries of the people, obviously, would be considered program services. Their benefits that you pay them to do this work would be considered program services. If they have offices that they operate in during the day before they pick up the kids and they're doing different kinds of work to support the program, that would be considered program services. The computers that they use to do their work would be considered program services. A case could even be made that the vetting of the people who are doing the work can be considered program services. You just can't put people out there without being vetted. That could also be considered program service. Now, there are other support services that would not be considered program services. What are they? These are things like accounting because somebody has to make sure that all of the bills get paid in the organization. That would be the accountant. Somebody has to make sure that all of the expenses get recorded in the accounts of the organization. Somebody has to make sure that their financial reports that are distributed so that the board of directors or others in the public can understand what the organization is doing with the money. There may also be people who are in human resources, the people who go out and hire and administer the benefits programs that these people work under. They would be considered administrative or overhead. The organization may also have fundraisers, people who go out and raise money for the organization. That would be considered overhead. All of the computers and uh, some of the costs of the website that the organization has, if they're doing any marketing, all of these things could be considered overhead for the organization. These things don't directly affect the servicing of those kids, but arguably you could not have an organization if these things did not exist. And so to assume that this organization should have little to no overhead and that somehow it's ineffective or inefficient for having overhead is not accurate. It's simply not accurate. In addition, and this is what gets really challenging for people to understand, sometimes people in an organization may work in different functions. You may have a person doing part-time fundraising, part-time administrative work, and part-time program work. And some of their time would need to be allocated to these various functions in order for an accurate accounting of their overhead costs and program costs to be understood. So 
these are not simple calculations that have to be made because when a person's time is allocated to these various functions, so too must the other cost that they incur, such as travel, such as their office space, such as the time they use on their computers and various technologies. Those portions of those expenses would also need to be allocated to those various functions to get an accurate reading on what the overhead is of the organization. Now, what most organizations will do is they'll have a plan for how costs are allocated throughout the organization so that they can be consistent from year to year, from period to period, and how costs get distributed among these various programs. But this is no simple function. And so if organizations do this well, then you'll get a good read on it. If organizations don't do this well, you may get an estimate of what their overhead costs are, but you may not get an accurate reading of what their overhead costs are. And so for people who depend on these organizations reporting their overhead, if they're not doing it well, you could be giving money to an organization that you think is spending low amounts on overhead because they're not properly accounting for their overhead. Or you could be giving money to an organization that is under reporting its program expenses because they're not accurately accounting for their overhead. It's not easy to do. Organizations that get audited financial statements every year, the auditor will come in and they will review the allocation plan to make sure that at least the organization has a plan in place and is trying to operate within that plan. But all of it depends on how accurately people report their time. So I just wanted to point this out. We tend to want to rely on whether an organization's overhead is too high or too low. Let's start with, are they accurately reporting it? And how would you even know? So this is one challenge associated with relying on how much money a charity spends on overhead before you decide to make a gift. Now, the second thing I want to get into with regard to this overhead is where did this whole idea come from in the first place? Where did we get this idea that somehow we even need to pay attention to how much money a charity spends on overhead? Because frankly, it's all organizational costs. You can't have the organization without overhead. And in a perfect world, what we should really be focused on is how well an organization is delivering its programs. Regardless of how it spends its money, we want to know, is it producing what it says it's going to produce? The program, is it going to function the way it's supposed to function, regardless of how the money's being spent? So where did this idea of overhead as something we need to be concerned about even come from? Well, if you go back to the 1950s and 1960s, this is around a time when state government regulation of charities began to take root. And much of this was in response to an increasing number of misleading and fraudulent solicitations, especially with telemarketing, 
which generally results in a fairly high fundraising expense and very little of a donation raised that way goes to the particular charity. And then we even saw back then fraudsters that were focused on basically these popular causes like veterans and police and firefighters. And sadly, some of this continues to this day. But they would use these what we call badge scams to get people to give money to these fundraisers and they were keeping most of that money. Again, this is the time when we saw an explosion really in telemarketing that caused a lot of this back in the 1950s and 60s. And so there was some fraud going on and and people wanted to begin rooting this out. And this is when state governments really got into the regulation of charities. Then in the 1970s, as computer-generated mail lists came into being, This generated a whole new wave of problems, particularly with appeals, this time using hard copy mail. That's right. They were using bulk postage rates. And this telemarketing, along with these bulk mails that people were receiving, together caused a lot of concern among people who were feeling that they were being scammed by these charities because a lot of their donations were going to the cost of these fundraising practices. And so at that point, states began to set up requirements that charities register with them to do fundraising. And then something else happened with the registrations. They began asking charities How much money were they spending on things like fundraising? Because that was the real concern. The concern was that the fundraising was eating up all of the charity's donations and that people who were giving their money thinking it was going to go to the charity, it was actually going to these paid fundraisers. They weren't happy and nor was the state regulators, right? So they began to put restrictions on how much money a charity could actually spend on fundraising. But this was outlawed in the 1980s. So in the 1980s, there were three famous Supreme Court cases. We'll have to get into it. But they essentially ruled that a state government could not legislate how much money a charity could spend on fundraising because it would affect the charity's ability to exercise free speech. And so therefore people could not rely on the state regulators to police the amount of money spent on fundraising costs. And so they had to find out other ways how much money was being spent on fundraising. Now, the key thing to appreciate here is even after these laws were struck down, the concern about too much money going to fundraising persisted in people's minds. And this began to 
spin off into a concern, I think, about overhead in charities. If a charity was spending too much money essentially on fundraising, then something was wrong with that organization and potentially it was fraudulent. But now the concern was really about fraud back then because the vast majority of charities were doing just fine, but it was some out there were just defrauding people and the public had a right to be concerned, right? Public had a right to not want to be scammed, but at the same time, it wasn't right to begin using fundraising costs as a way of comparing one charity's effectiveness or efficiency to another. Let me repeat that. This is really important. What the states were trying to do, which was ultimately struck down, and how people began to think about charities later on regarding their need for protection against scams was one thing. But to use those same methods, that is limiting fundraising costs, to determine whether one charity was worth more than another charity, that is if a charity was only spending 10 cents out of a dollar on fundraising compared to another charity that's spending 30 cents out of a dollar. We want to say that the one that was spending 10 cents out of a dollar is better. That's not necessarily true. The objective of these ratios, the objective of measuring fundraising costs compared to what was actually raised was really done to determine where fraud might exist. Because we can all agree if a charity is spending 80, 90 cents out of a dollar on fundraising, there's a problem. We can't quite say the same thing if 30% spent, even 40%, sometimes 50%. Because frankly, some causes require more fundraising than others. Some require that organizations spend more on fundraising than others. The cause isn't really popular. The organization might have to spend more. An organization is just getting started with its fundraising. It might have to spend more in the beginning to build up its list of donors. If an organization is going after small donations, it might have to spend more to get that going. So we can't just assume that because one organization spends a little bit more on fundraising than another, that that organization is not as good as one that's spending less on fundraising. Really important to understand this. But our mindsets are, if a charity is spending over a certain percentage on fundraising, it must be a bad charity, and it's not true. Now, the Wise Giving Alliance, the BBB Wise Giving Alliance, the organization that I work for, has a requirement. In order to meet our standards, an organization has to spend no more than 35 cents to raise a dollar. No more than 35 cents to raise a dollar. And very few organizations we evaluate fail to meet that standard. Very few. Now, some may say that's because the organizations that we evaluate are very mature in their fundraising. And so they are less likely to have problems meeting a ratio that requires them to spend no more than 35 cents to raise a dollar. We're a newer organization. 
might have more difficulty because they're just getting their fundraising going. We don't have a way of determining the truth of that. All we know is when we look at the charities we evaluate, less than 5% fail to meet that particular standard. That doesn't mean, though, that there are other or aren't organizations out there that are struggling to build their fundraising program. So my recommendation to people is if you're concerned about an organization that might be spending what you consider to be too much on fundraising or too much on overhead, ask them why they're spending that amount of money. Don't just assume they're a bad organization. Ask them what they're doing. Why is it? If there's a good reason for it, you might want to continue to support. You can't just assume that because the numbers say something that the organization is somehow ineffective or inefficient or bad. Want to really make that point today. Now, the last thing I want to talk about with regard to charity finances is that this is a very challenging time for nonprofit organizations. It's challenging because we're seeing a declining number of people donating to charities. And this means that more of the donations coming into charities are coming from a smaller number of people who happen to be very wealthy. Wealthier people are donating more to charity, thank goodness, because that's keeping a lot of the doors open. And everyday people who used to give five, ten, a hundred, five hundred dollars aren't giving in the same way that they used to. I've been talking about this for quite some time on these podcasts. What this may also mean is that charities feel who feel constrained about spending on fundraising are focusing only on those organizations or those donors. I say organizations because it's foundations too, or donors that have lots of money to give to them because they get a bigger bang for the expense. But folks, that comes as a potential cost because a charity has to be able to grow donors. People don't just wake up in the morning and say, I'm going to make a large gift. They usually start out with much smaller gifts. And over time, they're able to grow their interest in the organization so that they can make larger gifts. But if an organization is ignoring soliciting people for smaller gifts because they're worried about the cost, they never get to have the relationship build up with people such that they can give more money later. And already last year, I think we saw a decline, not only in the number of donors, but we saw an overall decline in giving in total to charitable organizations, a real concern. So I hope this little talk that I've given you on charity finances helps you as a donor appreciate what charities are dealing with and what you can do as a donor to really understand what your money is being used for and why charities have to spend money on overhead. It's not bad to spend money on overhead. Charities need to spend money on overhead. We want to make sure what they're spending is reasonable. We don't want to see the preponderance of the money spent on overhead. 
We also want to make sure you understand what constitutes overhead, because a lot of times things that people think are overhead really isn't overhead. Some people think, as I said before, all salaries are overhead. All salaries are not overhead. It depends on what the person is doing who's earning that money. The person's working on a program, that's program expense. And of course, for those of you who don't even appreciate that charities do work and they only believe that they're just passing through money from the donor to a person in need, I hope you understand and see the distinction now that that's not every charity. There's some charities who don't directly serve people, but they're still charities. They're serving society in different ways. They may be think tanks. They may be organizations that serve animals. Animals aren't people, at least to my knowledge. They may be serving the environment writ large through policy rather than actually helping people who are dealing with environmental issues. So there are lots of different ways for charities to operate and they need programs that may not touch people directly in order to operate well and achieve their mission. All right. So we're going to end it right here. But if you have any questions about anything I've said today, and I hope I've stimulated some debate, maybe some thoughts about this, if you have any, reach out to me at Taylor at give.org. And I'm happy to have a further conversation with you about this. You can also reach me on LinkedIn. You can find me on LinkedIn. I'm a Herman Art Taylor, not hard to find on LinkedIn. And please do, by the way, subscribe to the show and post a comment or definitely at least like the show so that we can get the word out about this episode and other episodes. We're not trying to spend a whole lot of money on promotion either. So you can be our biggest support in getting the word out about the show. The show is every week for those of you who are listening for the first time. And each week there's a new show on Tuesdays. The shows come out. If you subscribe, you will get a notification that the show's coming out and you can listen in. So thanks for listening and we'll see you back here next week. You've just listened to the Heart of Giving podcast with Art Taylor. Be sure to tune in next time for a brand new episode. To listen to our other interviews, visit heartgiving.podbean.com. That's heartgiving.podbean.com. Subscribe to our show on major podcast platforms. The thoughts and opinions expressed on this podcast are the views and opinions of the guests, not those of the BBBY's Giving Alliance or program affiliates. This podcast is for information and educational purposes only and is copyrighted with all rights reserved. This podcast is protected by Podbean's Terms of Service.